Uh, I learned a few years ago uh, when I was regularly working out in a gym that uh, men sweat, uh, women perspire. At least that's what I thought. What I found out is that women have this patina of radiance. They glow. (laughs) Whereas men sweat. But I have a plan B this morning. And that is, I pray and we leave right now. (laughs) Um, And I decided that when I got up this morning, I walked outside and the heat was already oppressive. Um, Actually, it's not as bad as it was this morning, but I think it still is, you know, warm enough that, you know, soldiers could fall. Um, So if you like, we can go home now and I can, uh, I'm serious, and I can, um, you know, get on Facebook and put my message on Facebook, and if you want, then you can see it that way, or else we could just labor through it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is it? Well, no, but definitely a bias. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Gluttons for punishment. You know, my dad uh, used to say, and I think this was uh, as a warning to me and others, um, the mind cannot retain more than the seat can endure. (laughs) And sometimes it's not just the seat, it's like the whole body. But anyway, um, all right, then Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This beatitude stands out from the others. It, it's not so different from them. It serves the same purpose. It gives us a, a profile of the disciple of Jesus, um, the blessed state of this person. And, and again, all these negatives that we've gone through, they're a blessed state because Jesus can make use of them. He can make good use of them. They, they are like pliable clay in the hands of the, the potter. Uh, they're not ready, f- uh, taken on the form of this super successful person. They're a broken person. Um, they're a grieving person. Uh, they're a humble person, and they are compliant to his will. Um, but this is a little different. Now, my goal in going through the Beatitudes is to find in them a design for Christian spirituality, and which is surprising because we think of moving higher and higher in our spiritual development so that we're more and more powerful. Uh, but we haven't seen that. We, we've seen this, this whole person is someone who's, who stays with their brokenness their entire life. They, they never uh, become inflexible to God's will. <clears throat> so in, in this light of looking at Christian spirituality and the Beatitudes, this Beatitude is the most explicit so far. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For centuries, and I'd, I'd say since the beginning of Judaism, the, the uh, aspiration of every godly person is to see God. It's, it's expressed in Psalm 27 really well. One thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may live in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. I, I want to be in the sacred space in which I can behold God, in which I can behold his beauty. A phrase that occurs frequently in the Old Testament is, Seek the Lord. And more specifically, seek his face. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord rejoice, sang King David. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. So here's the promise of Jesus, this quest from ages past, to see God is now being fulfilled for the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's look at this beatitude and, and learn to do this, uh, or learn to have, have this pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. To, to hear, to really hear what Jesus is saying, we have to go behind these words. A religious belief from ancient times, and it, you can still find it um, in certain religions of the world today. An ancient belief was that the world was inhabited by spirits. And so there was a spirit for every tree and every river and a spirit for the weather, for the wind and the clouds and the rain and the sun and the moon and stars. Uh, there was a, a spirit uh, for the sky. Um, okay, you get it. So how people treated living things and nature and forces was really important because you could trigger the anger of a spirit. Or you may have to placate a spirit because the spirits could do good for you or do bad to you. They could promote the growth of your crops or destroy all of your crops. Um, there were a couple of missionaries who went to Papua New Guinea uh, among the first to reach one of the headhunting uh, tribal groups there. And um, they were killed. They hadn't been there all that long, but they were killed. And they were killed because they had desecrated the river by bathing in it with shampoo and soap. And the tribal people felt if they did not protect the sacredness of the river, that the spirit of the river would retaliate and they'd suffer for it. So here's a situation where a little cultural anthropology research before going to a place 
could have saved human lives and give them, them a better idea of how to connect with this culture rather than how to greatly offend these people. The spirit of, of a thing then, or, or animal or whatever, could act for or against a person. So there were rules established and rituals created not to offend them and to appease them if they had been offended. Now there's a, an idea that's related to this. Anthropologists call it mana. And that is the idea that, that everything is also endowed with power. Well, not everything, especially certain objects, are power objects. Some of them occur naturally. And if you find one, you're very cautious around it. You, you go and get the shaman because they can handle these things. You can't. Um, and some of these things are constructed. Uh, a pentagram, for instance. Uh, certain objects or conditions held power. And contact with them released that power and was transmitted to the person who had contact. So if you touched a dead body, you were defiled by contact with that body. But you have to understand, this is almost like a material, you know, substantial thing that happens to you. This negative power attaches itself to you by this contact and it has to be cleansed away. Okay, so, so there are those things that contact with them releases negative power. And, and so we talk about taboo. What's taboo in this, this culture? Or the curse or bad juju. The Old Testament talked about being defiled or unclean or unholy. That was the, the negative power. And if you're in that condition, not only could you not have anything to do with God, who is holy, you could not even live among his people. You had to be either moved outside the camp or completely cut off from the people or in extreme cases, executed by stoning. So they had rules to avoid contamination and purification rituals to remove it. Um, if you've ever ventured into the book of Le Leviticus, and like by the fourth or fifth chapter said, I'm lost. How did I get here? <laughs> I, I don't even recognize any street signs or anything. Um, you will have noticed along the way that there's a lot about purification. In fact, it's in Leviticus that we find the purification code. And all kinds of things, a uh, person's body, uh, their clothing, the home they live in, uh, and then any, any action that defiles, all of this has some way to get rid of that negative energy. The purity code, um, this is really hard for us because, you know, we naturally think hygiene. Well, of course, if I touched a corpse, I'm going to wash my hands before I eat. I'm going to wash the germs off, right? But, but they had no knowledge of germs. It's not about that. This is spiritual for them. This is spiritual reality. They lived in a world that if you angered the spirits or angered God, you're going to suffer the consequences, and you're going to carry on your person that negative energy, and, uh, and you're going to always know it. You have to 
You have to be rid of it. Um, so what constituted impurity? Well, mixtures. Uh, you're not to sow two kinds of seed in the same field. You're not to mix materials in your clothing. Um, what's the problem here? Well, if you mix two things that are unlike, one of them is out of place. It's out of its proper category. And something that is where it doesn't belong, especially if it's significant, is what creates the impurity. Anyone who had contact with blood was made impure by the blood. Why? Because the blood belonged inside the body. And if it was outside the body, that was an impurity. And that had, we're not talking about washing a wound and bandaging it. We're talking about a person has to go and offer a sacrifice of some kind in order to be delivered of that negative energy. Okay, we live so far from there, I feel like I'm not getting anywhere with this. So, um, uh, There's also a positive power. Um, uh, the negative power was attached to things like birth, death, um, uh, bloody wounds, uh, sex. And um, again, there are rituals for all these things. The positive power Israel called holiness or you know the blessings of God. And that was transmitted to a person by contact with God or anything that belonged to God, his temple, uh, the altar in the temple, uh, a, a priest and the priest garments. Um, all of this carried a positive energy that also could be transmitted to people unless the person was defiled and then they would defile the holy person or the holy thing. All right, so the Pharisees in Jesus' time were radically devoted to the purity codes. Um, Mark makes this observation. He said that Jesus was somewhere with his disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. And then Mark adds this footnote. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And all of that makes sense to us because if you're in the marketplace, you're going to collect germs. And that's why um, now in front of the supermarket we go to, there's a little dispenser where you can get a, a wipey, an antibacterial wipey, wipe your hands and wipe off the bar of the uh, shopping cart, which makes sense in our sterile antibacterial society. However, it's not at all what the Pharisees had in mind. Um, in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem, there's been excavations a lot, of course, and then some underneath the homes of people. And um, underneath this one man's home is a home dating back to roughly the time of Jesus, uh, maybe 40 years after Jesus died, um, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. And it's called the burnt house. And um, in that 
in particular when I'm thinking about, there is this large rectangular hole in the ground that would have been like in the basement of their house with steps going down into it. It was a baptismal. And this is where the Pharisee or the, you know, the priest would go. If they'd been to the marketplace, they're going to take their whole body and immerse it in, you know, with ritual in the baptismal. There were small baptismal fonts uh, in the synagogues that allowed a person to do the ceremonial cleansing there. If you've been to Israel and you visited the Dome of the Rock, there are places where Muslims can wash their hands and feet before they enter the Mosque of Aqsa or the Dome of the Rock, these places that are for them sacred. And it, it was the same thing with the Pharisees. I'm washing off the defilement that has attached itself to me through contact with defiling influences, the purity code. Both Jesus Christ and Paul the Apostle minimize the purity code. Um, okay, so their emphasis instead was on the inner life of the believer. And for Jesus, his emphasis was on the consistency between the inner life and the external life. And so you could tell that the Pharisees, you know, you wash the outside of cups and bowls, but the inside's full of filth. You're, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're all you know, spruced up on the outside, but there's death and corruption on the inside. And he wants to see instead what? He wants to see a pure heart. So Jesus spells out now what this purity means. In fact, he spells it out all through the Sermon on the Mount. There, there are a couple of ways of looking at this purity. First of all, it's a heart that is complete or whole. Um, and then secondly, it's a heart that is one. It's the whole heart in terms of now we have a, a whole person, but, and of course this is related, it's one. That is, the heart has one devotion, one allegiance. The packaged drinks that I buy for my grandkids at the store says on the, the packaging, 100% fruit juice. Well, that's redundant. Or, pardon me, it says 100% pure juice. That's redundant. If it's pure, it's 100%. If it's not 100%, it's not pure. It's impure. Something else is in there. Um, and sometimes we see 100%. That's not really true. But pure gold means it's all gold. It's not an alloy. Um, there's no other metal in there. Um, pure water is exactly that. Uh, sometimes, though, there are liquids, uh, drinks, for instance, that are watered down. And what Jesus sees is a watered-down righteousness, a watered-down spirituality. And that's because the heart is not pure. If the heart's pure, nothing about the spiritual life gets watered down. Righteousness is righteous. Purity is pure. 
mercy is merciful, and the quality of mercy is not strained. Purity is related to integrity, and integrity is related to integer. I'm going to keep coming back to this. What's an integer? It's a whole number. uh, There's no fraction. And uh, that means that uh, it's complete. It's it's, um, uh, integrity is oneness of heart, mind, and soul. Daniel Siegel argues that the key, he's a a professor of psychiatry at UCLA. Um, I hope I didn't get that wrong, because if he's at USC, an alumni of USC will kill me. (laughs) But um, uh, he says that the key to robust mental health is integrity. And he explains how the brain was designed for integration. That, say, in a particular area of the brain, there's all this communication, synaptic you know, transfer of information through what are called interneurons, neurons that connect the various parts of that structure together. But then there are these integrative neurons that go from one structure to another. And so there are also these points of integration within the brain. The hippocampus is, is one, for example. It gets lots of information and, uh, and has to make sense out of it and, and what to, to do with it. So there are these long, long, long fibers or, or nerves that connect different parts of the brain. And then in those different parts, there are co- all kinds of nerves that integrate with each other and with the whole thing. Any of those parts broken, there's going to be a lack of integration, and there won't be you know, perfect mental health. Um, so purity is having one heart devoted to one ultimate loyalty. And so in chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, no man can serve two masters. Either he's going to be loyal to one and hate the other, or he's going to uh, reject one and uh, cling to the other. Now, my dad used to say, Jesus did not say, no one can have two masters. He said, no one can serve two masters. It's possible to have two masters, but they're both not getting your complete service. Neither one are. And this is the very issue that Jesus is addressing. Um, and, he, and he says it over and over again in, in several ways. Purity is an integrated heart, but it's also the integration of the heart and the mind and the spirit and the body. The famous prayer of Israel, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. The Lord God is one, and we worship him with the whole heart, 
the, the one whole of heart and soul and might. That's purity. Purity isn't going through the closet and throwing out all the old stuff. When we approach purity, a lot of times that's the way we will make a list of all of my impurities. You know, um, okay, I'm going to have to get a stack of legal papers to do this. Um, we make a list of our impurities and then we start checking it off as you know we get over. That's not that's that's the hard way to go about purity. That's the purity code. That's the legal way. The way that Jesus recommends is just throw everything in to God. Throw it all in to God. And he's saying this to people like us who have normal lives and are trying to raise children or grandchildren and uh, have to work and you know, have to prepare food and should try to keep the house clean and the lawn mowed. <laughs> okay, but that's not necessary. Um, uh, so he knows. He, he knows the lives we live. And he can still imagine us with, with the pure heart that he's looking for. That in, in all of these things, it can be an expression of purity of heart. Those things don't you know, make us impure because they're distractions. There's something settled at the base of, of who we are. Purity cannot escape being relational. Um, if you look at Jesus illustrations of the surpassing righteousness. He said, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he goes into examples. He says, for instance, you've heard you're not supposed to murder, but I'm telling you, don't be angry at your brother. But let's start there. You know, that, that when something comes out of you out of anger, you call your brother a fool. He says, um, you don't realize that you're really endangering your life with God. You're violating your own oneness of heart. Um, and he says, you've heard that it said you're not to commit adultery, but I'm telling you that whoever looks on a woman uh, with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, it's not like there's no difference between the two. And he's not talking about just noticing someone who's attractive. He's talking about you know, developing that whole fantasy, getting the, the neurotransmitter kick out of that that, that naturally comes. And, and he's saying, now, when you are there, when your thought life is there, then to say, well, I've never committed adultery, he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, you've undermined the integrity of the internal and the external. And this is what Jesus does all, all through the rest of the chapter, from like verse 21 to the end of the chapter. He gives these examples. He joins the internal with the external, the, the, the thoughts and the feelings with the actions of the body. And even into chapter 6, he's doing the same thing. He says, don't be like the hypocrites who, when they pray, love to draw attention to themselves. You see, each, each illustration that he ra raises here involves another person or persons. So, Purity definitely is, is relational because some of the things that we do in relationships with other people are, uh, uh, violate our purity. If I give money to some ch charity 
And maybe even if I really believe in the charity, of course, I don't think I'll give if I don't. Um, but what I want out of that is some kind of recognition. And if I don't get it, then I start letting people know, yeah, I donated to this charity. And we just throw it in there, you know, like, and, and, you know, and then I went to the market and, you know, gave to the, you know, the Boy Scouts there. And then, um, Jesus says, you are, you are violating purity that does it for the, the original reason and leaves it there. Uh, doesn't seek anything else from it, any reward now. Uh, and in some of these illustrations, he elaborates on them in, ter- in terms of relationship. For instance, when he's talking about being out of sorts with a brother, he says, hey, before you ever go to worship, go to your brother and make things right, and then go and your worship will be acceptable. You know, so, so the purity is relational, and sometimes he goes into details. Integrated people then develop integrating relationships. In other words, now two people. And I believe that behind all this is an ultimate integration with God. For they shall see God. That God wants to join us to himself. That he wants to share one will with us. One heart with us. One mind with us. He wants us to think his thoughts and feel what he feels. He, um, and so, you know, we're doing this with each other. Alienation is symptomatic of damaged humanity. When, you know, Adam and Eve, they're living in this perfect intimacy with each other. The man and his wife were together, naked and unashamed. Um, a perfect intimacy with nature, the, you know, the world around them. Intimacy with God. They disobey, and what happens? They're alienated from God. They're alienated from nature. It no longer feeds them like it used to, and they're alienated from each other. So alienation is, is um, symptomatic of damaged humanity. And the wrong things that we do disintegrates relationship. And we can even say, well, I, you know, I didn't hurt anybody. No one was hurt. But if it was wrong, someone was hurt. You just didn't see it. You, you just don't know who it was. Um, the wrong that we do disintegrates relationships, even if it's just a little bit. You know, a little bit of plaster falls out from between the stones, and pretty soon the stones topple. I think that now it should be fairly easy I'm sorry, I was going to say something facetious, and it's not the time. Um, Though it almost always is the time for me, but now it should be easy to see the things that interfere with purity. Um, Obviously, a divided heart. Jesus says in chapter 6 of Matthew, it's part of the sermon still, he says, don't lay up treasures on earth that can be stolen or can corrode or be moth-eaten. Um, lay up treasures in heaven. So now here's this, you know, uh, division. Am I going to pour my life into making money, or am I going to? He, he doesn't say don't work for a reward. He says don't work for treasure. He says just don't give your whole life over to this treasure. 
Okay, you got to have an income, right? So he's not saying anything about that. He's just saying, don't devote your whole life to, to this because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And he wants our heart. He wants it whole and complete, and he wants it all for God. So lay up your treasures in heaven, and that's where your heart will be. He's giving us an important clue, by the way, as to how to pursue purity. Um, so I'll just leave that with you. Um, James, good old James, talks about being double-minded. He says, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I love that line because um, many years later, like two millennia later, um, it was the, the, the same t sort of thing was spoken by Abraham Maslow, who observed that Dichotomy pathologizes and pathology dichotomizes. And what he meant was if you split up things that are not supposed to be split up, that leads to dysfunctions and disorders of, of mind. Um, that's the pathology. And if you suffer from a pathology, you tend to divide things that should not be divided. I'd give you an excellent example of that, except I can't think of one. Um, David prayed, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to revere your name. Unite this divided heart of mine. Unite this fragmented heart. Unite, make my heart one so that I can revere your name. Otherwise, I don't know if I have that much reverence. I don't know if I understand the fear of God. I don't know that I stand in awe of God because my mind isn't in that place. It's somewhere else. My heart isn't there. But make my heart one and, and, and one around you, toward you, so that the proper reverence comes to me. The, the divided heart is the defect of the hypocrite. The failure of, of having two audiences for every action. That um, I'm praying to you, God. This is a way of connecting with you. And at the same time, I pray in such a way that I draw attention to myself. Look how, how devout that Pharisee is. He can't even wait till he gets to the synagogue. On his way there, he stops on the street corner and he just begins praying in front of everybody out in public. I, I had friends who would do that in restaurants. It would embarrass me to death. Stand on their chair. Don't you, you learn, don't ask this guy to pray in public. Because he stands up on the chair, holds out his arms, and says, Will you all pray with me? And that's his way of saying, don't ever ask me to do this again. Um, okay. A divided heart. A hardened heart. Um, Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another daily while it's still called today, lest there be... Uh, in any of you, a heart that's hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Anxieties rise in the heart. So do doubts. So do temptations. But, but none of these things ruin us. The, the entrance of anxiety, doubt, temptations, these do not ruin us. They, they just happen. However, if entertained, if repeated, if, if you're always admitting these thoughts, 
they can become habituated. And that leads to the hardened heart, um, the impure heart. So the prophets say, break up the fallow ground. Uh, Hosea says this, uh, Jeremiah says this. And they're talking about that, the, the crust of hardened dirt that would cover the surface of a field during the, the fallow months. And um, you'd have to run your plow through it and break it up so that you could begin planting in it again. And that happens to the heart. Sometimes the hardened heart has to, it has to break up that fallow ground. In another metaphor, uh, both in De- Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, uh, God says, circumcise your hearts. That there's something that has to happen to the heart to make it uh, uh, less calloused. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. A pure heart does not hang on to bad feelings toward others or how I was treated. All these bad feelings. A pure heart doesn't hang on to that. A pure heart doesn't hang on to bad news about others, gossip, slander. A pure heart um, does not desire, wish, or plan the harm of anyone else. I'm not saying it won't occur to you once in a while, but um, you, don't live, you don't let it lodge there, right? Uh, Martin Luther said, the birds of worry may fly over your head, but you don't have to let them nest in your hair. Which, when I first heard that, I didn't know Martin Luther had said that. A friend of mine had written it when he lived in Hawaii and was on acid and PCP. <laughs> and when he read it out of his journal, I just cracked up. I thought, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. But then I, I found out Martin Luther said it. And then I found out that St. Augustine had said it before Martin Luther. So now how can I laugh? <laughs> well, I just can, because it still strikes me as silly. Um, an impure heart can be purified. You know, that's the refiner's fire. That's what the fire does. It heats up the metal so that the purities rise to the surface and they're removed. Um, it can be purified by clean water, pure, pure water, uh, according to Hebrews 10.22. Um, there's the gardener's pruning shears. Jesus purified his disciples by his word. He says, now you are clean by the word that I've spoken to you. Another clue as to how we can come to purified hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I'm hesitant to say very much about this part, they shall see God. Because I have in my head for all my life an idea of the intensity of the kind of encounter we can have with God. And I've been told that only mystics experience that. And I tend to not accept that. However, I have my ideas. Obviously, Jesus is making a reference to the future, and we could say, well, yes, we will see God in heaven. The pure in heart now, we'll see God then. But what is heaven? I mean, heaven is God himself. So yeah, we'll see God. I don't think that this was all that Jesus had in mind. Uh, After all, if he could tell his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Then in some sense, 
they could say, we've seen God. John could say, we have seen the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and, and we have beheld his glory. So, I mean, in, in Jesus, the Father could be seen. But I think that only the pure in heart could see God in Jesus. I believe that our spiritual vision can be enhanced and that whatever makes for a pure heart also enhances our vision. We just start seeing more. And once we've noticed seeing God in one place, we look for him there again. Like Jacob returning to Bethel. It's not that we will see God with the eyes of our body. It's not that. I'm not, I don't expect to ever see God in this life the way I can see you. Though there are times when I see the image of God within you really clearly. And still, it's not the same thing Jesus is talking about, I don't think. But, but seeing with our physical eyes is not the only form of vision that we have. To envision something is to imagine something. And, and that's not with our physical eyes. It's with the, the eyes of the imagination. So Paul said to the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants us to have all of that in this lifetime, and he prays that the eyes of our heart are enlightened. The eyes of the heart will see the pure heart it is with a heart that we see God, someone has said. And so that's the window you want to wash, right? So that you want to be able to see clearly through that window. Purity is the integration of our whole life. You see, God tells us, be holy. Be merciful. Be pure of heart. Be this person. He's talking about the person that we are to become and to be. He, he's not saying do pure of heart things, do merciful things. Uh, he, he's saying be this person. Let yourself be this person. You know, um, I don't think he's asking anything impossible of us or even that difficult, it's a matter of letting go, of trying to be something else, or trying to make ourselves into something. He's saying, just relax into being this person. You may not know this, and I know some people have to learn this, that our brains will do what we tell them to do. It doesn't always seem that way when you have ADD or you know, other, you know, issues like that, but it's your brain. I mean, if you can't control it, who is going to? I mean, your brain will do what you tell it to do. If you give it a task, it will work on it. The significance of this. Our brains naturally contemplate whatever information we give them. So whatever interests us and holds our attention, we'll be thinking about that. And, and we may go a, a step deeper in our thinking. We may contemplate it. Contemplation is like 
when you were a child and you had one of those rare moments where you weren't running all around, you were just sitting and noticing something with a sense of wonder. You know how wonderful to recapture that. I don't know if anyone saw the, the sunrise this morning. I could not capture it on my iPad. It was too brilliant. It was so incredibly bright. I don't remember ever seeing a sunrise that bright. Did I say sunrise? No. Um, our thoughts and emotions can open up to God or they can open us up to something else. So it doesn't mean we have to think about God 24 hours a day, but if we create the habit of reflection on God or contemplation of God, we, if we create this habit and in times of leisure move that direction before we turn on the TV, before we pick up the novel, if we move that direction, I'm just going to contemplate maybe meditate on a scripture, just contemplate God, our brains will say, okay, this is our focus. And it will bring us back to this at other times, especially at times when it's really needed. Contemplate God, contemplate his creation, contemplate salvation in Jesus. I mean, just contemplate Jesus. And then... Like with the disciples, the words of Jesus will purify us. Uh, a practice, a regular practice, <laughs> I'm coming back to it again, folks. A regular practice of discipline, contemplation, will move us in the right direction. Okay, let's stand and get out of here. <laughs> God bless you.